Well, thank you for coming to this class. Uh, I'll be teaching this class in this place at this time uh, for the next three days, and I uh, hope uh, you'll be blessed. This class is titled, What Jesus Hates. So we'll just get off to the start by saying, it probably makes you uncomfortable to see Jesus and hate together. Uh, let me just begin by saying, the Bible is quite comfortable ascribing hate to God. In Proverbs 6, for example, you have a, a long list of things the Bible says God hates, like a lying tongue or hands that shed innocent blood. Uh, you know in Malachi 3.16, the Bible says that God hates divorce. There's no ambiguity there. Uh, in Amos 5.21, a lesser-known passage, uh, God is talking to a people who have forsaken the poor and the people on the margins, and he, they have not promoted justice, but they keep having church. And he says, I hate your assemblies and your religious feasts. And I don't think this exhausts the list of things that God hates. I think we could probably come to our, put our heads together and we could create a list of things that I think we would all agree God hates. I think we would all agree God hates uh, the, the slave and sex trafficking industry. I think, personally, God hates uh, the dismissal and even disdain for the unborn in our country. Uh, I think we would all agree God hates demonic activity. God hates the New York Yankees. God... <laughs> I think we'd agree. God hates cell phones in church. He hates that. God hates cats. Do not email me about this. Cats will not be in heaven. I can prove it, by the way. You take a dog, and you care for that dog, and you feed that dog, and you treat that dog when it's sick, and you love on that dog, that dog will follow you because that dog will think you are God. You take a cat. You feed that cat. You care for that cat. You treat that cat when it's sick. You love that cat. That cat will not follow you because that cat will think, I must be God. There will not be cats in heaven. Um, so, notice what I did. I went from a list of things that we know God hates to a list of things I want God to hate. And a lot of damage has been done by people claiming to speak for God, telling other people what they know God hates. In fact, you know you have made God in your image when God starts hating all the same things you hate. And that's where Jesus helps us. He keeps us straight about what to hate. And so what I did, I got the idea for this series a couple of years ago. Well, I wonder, what, what if I, what did Jesus hate? Because I know God hates, it says so in the Bible, what did Jesus hate? So I, I literally just started one day in my office with some yellow pads, and I started in Matthew, and I just read the four Gospels, which, by the way, not a bad way to spend a day. And I just wrote down on a yellow pad every text or, or passage or pericope in the Gospels where Jesus is upset 
or perturbed or angry or in conflict. I went all the way down my yellow pad, all the way down a second column, and it dawned on me, a great portion of the narrative of the life of Jesus is Jesus being upset, which goes counter to how we have basically painted Jesus as some long-haired hippie. He lives in a van, he passes out flowers, and he wears toms. The truth of the matter is, Jesus could preach sermons that would peel the paint off the wall. And we're going to look at a couple of those, especially tomorrow. Here's what we're going to do. On Friday, we're going to talk about the one thing I think Jesus hates more than anything else. And you can be guessing what you think it is. I think my answer is going to surprise you. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about the kind of religion that Jesus hates. Because, by the way... Most of the conflict narratives in the Gospels are Jesus with religionists. So you have to ask the question, what kind of religion did Jesus hate? But what we're going to do today is focus a lot on Jesus in conflict over the subject of relationships. Now, let me be quick to say, the title of this class is not who Jesus hates. Remember that. The Bible doesn't say God hates the divorced. He hates divorce. Here's the bottom line. Jesus hates what gets in the way of God's love. That's what he hates. Anything that keeps people from experiencing the love God has for them, Jesus is going to hate. And we're going to see that in a moment as we focus especially on relationships. Now, I'm going to make a confession to you as we start class. I am a bit of a control freak. I've known that about myself for a long time. In fact, that's not even totally honest. I am a recovering controlaholic. (laughs) And controlaholics have one frustration we live with constantly. The one thing that is always on the verge of taking us over the edge. People. (laughs) You people simply will not do what we want the way we want when we want you to do it. See, I have this kingdom. I call it the kingdom of Rick. The flow chart is very simple. At the top is me, and at the bottom is all of you. And I cannot get you to live in my kingdom the way I want you to live. For example, in my kingdom... I have a number of states. One of my states is the state of office. I spend a lot of time in that state. And, and, and in my state of office, the phone does not ring when I'm in the middle of intense study. And ugly emails do not come. And nobody knocks on the door saying, can I have five minutes? And they never want just five minutes. And what does this mean? It means all is well and good in the state of office in the kingdom of Rick. Then I go to a very popular state in my kingdom called the state of Edie now. And I am immediately seated and not close to a smoker or someone that even wants to be a smoker. And my order is taken. And even though I have a special request, it comes just like I asked. And it's well prepared. And she can't keep my tea glass full enough. And the service is impeccable. And people around me are not loud and obnoxious. And what does this mean? All is well and good in the state of eating out in the kingdom of Rick. And then I go to the most important state in my kingdom. The state of home. 
and I pull in the garage and I walk in the back door and ESPN is already on the big TV. <laughs> and by the recliner, there is a Diet Coke. And I sit down and I hear a voice from the kitchen, Honey, I'm fixing you a snack and then I'm going to come rub your back. <laughs> and what does this mean? It means I've walked in the wrong house. <laughs> Because that's never going to happen. Because here's the reality. Every single state in my kingdom is in rebellion. Everyone. I can't get any of them to line up to the flow chart. And so, when I read the narrative about Jesus, I am immediately convicted with this. If I'm going to be Christ-like, I'm going to have to like, like Christ. And Jesus liked people. He liked people a lot. Even the hard to like people. You may have heard the story of the guy who hears a knock on his door in the middle of a rainstorm at 3 in the morning. He gets out of bed. He goes downstairs. He opens the door and there's a drunk saying, hey, buddy, can you give me a push? And he says, no. It's the middle of the night. And he slams the door, goes upstairs, gets back in bed. Why? What was that? Some drunk needing a push? I told him to leave. She says, and do you not remember a month ago when our car stopped and, and some people stopped that we didn't even know and helped us? And he said, you're right. And he gets back out of bed, goes back downstairs, opens the front door. It's just a driving rain. He yells, you still out there? He hears a voice. Yeah. You still need a push? Yeah. Where are you? Over here on the swing set. It's a story of my life. I'm, it seems like God is constantly asking me to give difficult people a push. But if I'm going to be like Christ, I cannot live my life disliking the very people He liked. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do two directions. One, we're going to talk first about how Jesus liked who I'm going to call the outsider. And then we're going to talk about how he disliked the way the insider often behaves. Jesus liked labeled people. He liked them so much he was often called the friend of sinners. And he regularly arranged his schedule to spend time with the kind of people that his followers today tend to arrange our schedules to avoid. You see, we typically today often treat as foes the very people Jesus made friends with. You may have be familiar with a book by a man named Hemet Mehta called I Sold My Soul on eBay. It kind of started as a joke. He's an atheist. He said, I put my soul on eBay and the highest bidder can take me to their church. What happened is it turned into a book deal where he went across the country and he visited churches of different denominations, sizes, races, and he wrote his observations as an atheist visiting churches. And by the way, in the book he's not unkind. He just basically writes as a neutral observer. But here's one thing he said. As I read Christian books, as I spent months attending an amazing variety of churches in different parts of the country, I kept running across a consistent and troubling truth about American Christianity. Here's the line. 
it's clear that most churches have aligned themselves against non-religious people. And by adopting a stance, Christians have turned off the people I would think they'd want to connect with. The combative stance I've observed in many churches and from many Christians on an individual level is an approach that causes people to become apathetic and even antagonistic toward religion as a whole. For example, several years ago, a recording artist named Katy Perry had a very popular song called I Kissed a Girl and I Liked It. I don't know the song. I probably wouldn't like the song. What I do know is that shortly after it came out, a church on their big uh, sign out front put these words up. I kissed a girl and I liked it, dot, 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 and then I went to hell. (laughs) Now, can you see Jesus wearing that T-shirt? Maude Flanders on that uh, popular television show, The Simpsons, the uptight religious couple that live next door, is seen getting into a van and she's asked where she's going and she explains she's going to Bible camp and she's asked why and her answer to learn how to be more judgmental. (laughs) And this perception, even if it is unfair, is a real perception that we don't particularly like people who don't think like us. So I want you to remember what the Bible says. Jesus didn't just forgive sinners. He friended them. Look with me at Luke 5. I know you know this text well, starting to verse 27. Now after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So can we expect people to find faith in Jesus by acting opposite the way he acted? Let me say it again. Christ's likeness would be at the least the minimum level means liking like Christ. And Christ liked the very people I was taught to avoid. What Jesus hates, frankly, is the way we hate on sinners. Because it's not like Jesus to hate on sinners. You've got to remember, Jesus was a missionary. He intentionally entered a very different culture to reach some in that culture for the kingdom of God. And the radical message of the Gospels isn't so much that people are desperately seeking God. That's the word we invented. We call lost people seekers now because it's offensive to call them lost people. But the Bible doesn't call them seekers. The Bible calls God the seeker. He's the shepherd that's leaving the 99 and going out and looking for the sheep. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's a missionary. And as a missionary, he understood this basic missional principle. You have to first make friends with the people you hope to someday make disciples. And he did so by meeting them on their turf. Jesus, by the way, was a big fan of what I call the party ministry. 
where he would reach somebody and he would say, you got friends, throw a party. I'll show up. I'll hang with them. Because Jesus understood for a lot of people, community precedes conversion. They become friends before they become disciples. We launched last year a, uh, a third campus of our church over in West Fort Worth. And uh, we're meeting in a movie theater. And so we don't have a lot of Bible classroom. The primary way we're trying to produce community is in small groups. We had sign up for small groups. 42% of the people who signed up for our 20-something small groups are not members of our church. But they are hungry for community. And Jesus loved this. That guy that smells like he might have been smoking pot. He's got long hairs and he's got a piercing or two and a couple of tattoos and a leather jacket. You know that guy? That guy that as a boy I was taught to stay away from. That guy that thinks WWJD stands for we want Jack Daniels. That guy. (laughs) Jesus knew how to be friends with that guy. He could hang with that guy. We want to hang that guy. (laughs) But Jesus wouldn't let his critics keep him from the critical. Because he didn't see his new friends as labels. He saw them as patients. He said, that's where a physician belongs. You have never walked up to a doctor and said, why do you hang out with sick people so much? He never denied their sickness or their sin. What he denied was the diagnosis that their condition was hopeless. That's how missionaries think. That's why they risk what they risk to enter the cultures they go to. Uh, NBC had this story on these prisons in Canada. And they were interviewing some inmates. And, you know, prisoners are amazingly creative. In this particular prison, like most, smoking was uh, outlawed. But they found ways to take uh, some residue from tea leaves and nicotine gum and create something they could roll up in paper and smoke. And and the the writing paper they had, they didn't like because it smoked too fast. So they found the best paper they had for rolling their cigarettes was the Bibles they'd been given. And they were interviewing this one guy named Robert. He says, I smoked Matthew. I smoked Mark. I smoked Luke. And then I got to John and read how much Jesus loves me and I stopped smoking. How good is that? Jesus thought the people, though sick, had hope. He never endorsed a worldliness that would make us unholy. But listen, he never endorsed a kind of holiness That was unworldly. We get this backwards. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. Now I wrote to you in my earlier letter not to associate with those who sin sexually. I didn't mean you shouldn't associate with those of this world who sin sexually. Or with the greedy or robbers or those who worship idols. To get away from them, you would have to leave this world. I'm writing to tell you, you must not associate with those who call themselves believers in Christ but who sin sexually or greedy, worship idols or abuse others with words or get drunk or cheat people. Do not even eat with people like that. 
It's not my business to judge those who are not part of the church. So we have, like I'm sure you do at some of your churches, a pretty active recovery ministry. We call it CASA, Christians Against Substance Abuse. And so at least three nights a week, we have people trying to uh, escape certain kinds of recovery issues, and they meet in our church for a Christ-centered approach, which is why if you came to my church, you would see outside the main entrances ashtrays. And several nights a week, if you come up to my church, you'll see a big group of people out there smoking before they go into their meeting. So you're not going to believe this. I have gotten the occasional email or confrontation with an upset mama who brought her baby up to church or something, and a bunch of people were smoking outside church. And I said, what were they smoking? (laughs) Cigarettes? Hallelujah, they're making progress. Why should we hate on sinners for sinning? Jesus didn't. And he had every right to do it. See, here's the thing. I'm not qualified to hate on a sinner. Maybe you heard the story about the uh, parents who told their daughter, when you get 16, you can go on a car date. Well, she's 16, she has a date. But dad's pretty nervous when he comes to the door, opens the door, and there he is. He looks like he's about 29 years old. Long, stringy hair, tattoos, smells like cigarette smoke. He's got a motorcycle out front. He shuts the door, turns to his little girl, says, Honey, I'm worried about your date. How come? I'm afraid he may not be very nice. Daddy, if he wasn't nice, would he be doing 500 hours of community service? (laughs) Because most, most of the labels that we slap on people are surface assessments. Three reasons I'm really not qualified to hate on a sinner. Here's reason number one. I don't know their backstory. You don't know mine. People have stories. And there are reasons people behave the way they behave because they believe what they believe. And you have no idea all the things in their past that caused them to believe the things that may not be true that they believe. And number two, I can't see your heart. I really don't know your motives. I really don't know. But here's the biggest reason I'm not qualified to hate on any sinner, and that is my own sin has disqualified me. So get this. When Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repent, what his critics didn't realize, he was talking about them too. I've come to call sinners to repent. He wasn't just talking about the people in Matthew's house. He was talking about his critics. See, to condemn a sinner, you've got to have just one standard to meet, and it's called perfection. You know the story. The woman's caught in the act of adultery. Jesus doesn't question her crime. He doesn't plead extenuating circumstances. He simply questions the right of her accusers to judge her. Let me show you what I think are the four most offensive words in the Bible. In Romans 3. There's no one righteous, not even one. Here they are. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What do you mean there is no difference? He's a felon. 
I teach junior high Bible school. What do you mean there is no difference? She left her family. I go on mission trips. As long as we judge our righteousness by playing the compare game, I can always win. But you know, I'm not a real tall guy. Some of you are. We could get a tall guy to come stand by me right now. And and you would say, there is a difference. But get in a plane, fly over our heads about 10,000 feet and look down and see two little dots. And you would say, there is no difference. What Paul is saying, when when you see people from the holiness of the throne of God... There is no difference. We have got to surrender this idolatrous lie that I'm better than you because you're always sinful and I'm just sometimes sinful. (laughs) There is no difference. But maybe you don't. I wrestle with this. The further away I get from that time when I was a prodigal, the easier it gets for me to act like an elder brother. Jesus says we're all sick, and then he says we're all welcome to be his friends. And I have to ask myself, have I been unwilling to make friends with a potential friend of Jesus. Two controversial uh, figures from the last century. Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint. Falwell was the uh, controversial leader of the moral majority movement, pastor of a big Baptist church in Lynchburg, Virginia, founder of Liberty University, And, of course, Larry Flint was the uh, owner and founder of the Hustler Porn Empire. And they had a series of debates with each other. One was in Florida. And when the debate was over, Flint asked Falwell if he could fly back to Virginia with him on his private jet. And Falwell agreed. And Falwell's son, Jonathan, was with him. And so he notices, here's this two-hour flight... They're just talking about sports, about politics, about favorite foods, chatting like big buddies. And Jonathan's incensed. And when they land and and Flint leaves, he asks his father, how could you engage such a repugnant man in such delightful conversation? And he says that his dad said to him words that really changed his life. He said, someday Larry Flint, is going to be hurting and lonely. And he's going to need to make a phone call to somebody. And I want to earn the right to that call. Now, I know when you teach what I'm teaching, and especially when we think about our teenagers, that this kind of teaching is open to great misinterpretation. But it's worth the risk. Because you need to be aware of anybody 
that wants you to be holier than Jesus. You cannot love on Jesus by hating on sinners. We're not saying sin isn't bad. We're saying none of us are that good. Sin is bad. It caused the death of Jesus. He didn't come as a missionary to belittle sin. He came to become sin. Remember this. Jesus didn't love sinners by becoming a sinner like them. He loved sinners by becoming sin for them. And so now, it's not that any of us are good Christians as much as all of us are just forgiven friends of Jesus. And that helps me stop looking at people so much like labels. There's a great story about uh, President George W. Bush uh, in one of the last years of his office. Tim Goblin was, for the first six or seven years, uh, one of his chief uh, PR uh, uh, people. He was in charge of the public liaison office. And it was discovered that about three-fourths of the articles he had written while he worked for the president involved some level of plagiarism. And so he resigned in disgrace, ashamed of what he had brought upon his family, but especially what he had brought upon the president, a man that was more than just a boss, but because of almost daily access, had become a friend. And so he goes to the Oval Office, shuts the door, he turns to the president, he says, Mr. President, I owe you and he says that Preston Bush held up his hand and just said, Tim, you're forgiven. He said, but sir, and again the president, stop. And then Bush added, I have known grace and mercy in my life. You are forgiven. So, just know that every weekend someone is coming to your church and they are scarred. And they are scared. Because somewhere in their past, somebody hated on them in the name of God. But they weren't speaking for Jesus. And your job is to find them and to speak for Jesus. And offer them the gospel instead of a label. Because you're talking to a person that Jesus would love to have as a friend. What did Jesus hate? Jesus hates anything that gets in the way of God's love. So, Jesus hated sinner hating. But I want to turn the corner now and talk about relationships within the kingdom. There's a story about a new pastor at this church... And he leads the closing prayer his first Sunday. Half the church on one side stands up and half remains seated. And as he's praying, he notices that the two sides start spitting venom at each other and almost getting into fisticuffs. And so he goes to find the former pastor. He says, is it the tradition of this church to stand during the closing prayer? And he says, no, I don't think that's a tradition. Oh, so it's the tradition to sit in the closing prayer. No, I, I don't think that's a tradition. Well, give me some advice because this church is just fighting and spitting and hating each other. That's the tradition. <laughs> History shows that those that claim to love Jesus have a hard time loving one another. And rather than encouraging loving, Christians have often chosen to encourage leaving. I'm sure you've heard the story about the guy who's on a deserted island. He's stranded. 
He gets rescued by a ship captain who comes and uh, sends a dinghy to pick him up and says, you're here all by yourself? Yeah, I've been by myself for several years. I'm so glad to see you. He says, but I see three huts up there. He says, yeah, but I can see that first hut. That's my house. And that second hut there, that's, that's, that's where I go on Sunday to worship. And the captain says, yeah, but what's that other hut? He says, well, that's where I used to go to worship. <laughs> I guarantee you, unchurched people will laugh at that joke. Because they get it. Because of our reputation. And so I was preparing this teaching last uh, Last spring, and my son said, Okay, Dad, what's Jesus going to hate this weekend? And I said, Well, he's going to hate division. My son says, Well, why did he just hate all kinds of math? (laughs) Turn to Mark 9. Teacher, verse 38, said John, We saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. The big lie that Jesus hates is this, that some of God's people are the sum of God's people. Go and chew on that one for a little bit. Now, this account gives us no background on who this guy was or how he came to knowledge of Jesus. But his fruitfulness is giving evidence of his faithfulness. So somehow, this guy has come to a conclusion that Jesus is sent by God that Jesus was in a cosmic struggle with forces of darkness, and he has decided, I am going to take my stand with Jesus against the forces of evil. And that's what he's doing. He really is legitimately using the authority of Jesus against Satan's schemes. So his problem is not his failure to follow Jesus. His problem is his failure to follow the twelve. We told him to stop. Why? He's not one of us. And not one of us thinking is one of Satan's most effective strategies. And by the way, it says John reported, but it says we told him. So they all thought it was a good idea. Which is particularly ironic because earlier in the same chapter... When Jesus comes down from the mount, he finds his disciples unable to cast a demon out of a boy. So they're stopping a man who's able to do what they just were unable to do. Because he's not one of us. And that kind of sectarian thinking has plagued and embarrassed the Jesus movement since the earliest days. And Jesus hates disciples doing division. The fact is, we don't share heaven's contempt for disunity. We don't, or we'd act better. Remember it says in Proverbs, things that God hates, a lying tongue, 
hands that shed innocent blood, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. God hates that. So Jesus says, do not stop him. For whoever is not against us is for us. I'd like to go on record. I think Jesus said it. I think Jesus meant it. One of the things you find as you read the the narrative, the disciples had lots of quarrels. And Jesus was always frustrated. He always interrupted and stopped their quarreling because he knows when dissension is present, a sense of mission is absent. Any army knows you can't win a war when you're fighting among yourselves. It's like the story of the knight that came into the king and said, Sire, I've just returned from a crusade where I have destroyed and I have pillaged all the villages of your enemies to the east. And the king says, But I don't have any enemies to the east. And the knight says, Well, you do now. We have made enemies. We had no orders from our king to make. The commander needs to draw the battle lines. I still remember over 20 years now having breakfast one morning with my old roommate, Max Licato. And it's really not important that you know he and I were roommates. I just like to name drop. And... (laughs) Max had this line that has stuck with me all these years. I thought it was brilliant. This is what he said. Denominationalism is a luxury only a Christian culture can afford. If you live in a culture where everybody proclaims Christ as Lord, perhaps in that culture you can afford conversations about ways we're different. We are so, 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 so far away from that kind of culture. Maybe you saw uh, last year in the Christian Chronicle, April 2011, uh, an article in which they interviewed a young woman from Egypt. It was during the time when Egypt was in the news every day with the uh, uh, protests going on. And, and she was a young woman named Lily Assad who was a part of the minority Christian community from Egypt. She attended the Madadi Community Church. Her grandfather had been a pastor, and she talked about the persecution they had endured. The times church services had been shut down by police, bricks that had flown through their windows. And somehow she learns about Abilene Christian University, and she comes to America to attend. And of course, at one level, she is amazed and pleased to see that in This country, you can practice your Christian faith and you don't even go to sleep once thinking, will there be persecution tomorrow? But then she noticed, she was disappointed that believers in the U.S. turn against each other just because they attend different churches. And here's what she said. In Egypt, we don't focus on our differences. We can't afford to. Those that bear the name should not bear arms against those who also bear the name. Here's two quick takeaways. Number one, we've got to understand that Jesus chooses flawed disciples to do His work. Think about it. What other choice does He have? <laughs> I guarantee you, every time you see somebody doing something in the name of Jesus, and you, I can't believe God would use Him, somebody is saying that about you. 
Now, this fellow's understanding of Jesus most likely was not as complete as the disciples. He had not been privy to private conversations with the master. It's highly probable he had some thoughts about Jesus that weren't as adequate as theirs. He may well have been wrong on some things, but he was right on the identity and on the mission of Jesus. And doesn't Jesus have the right to work through the life of whoever he chooses? God really convicted me about this several years ago. Uh, There's a well-known TV preacher that I'm just not particularly fond of. I think his preaching is shallow. I don't understand his popularity. He wrote a best-selling book. I read it. I thought it was pretty shallow. I didn't get it. And so I allowed myself to to have some measure of disdain for his ministry. Well, then I'm driving one day to uh, Abilene, as a matter of fact, with my father. And it was about a year after my mother had died of cancer. And my father had been really wrestling with some depression and some, some tough times. And on the way in the car, he tells me that someone gave him a book to read. And he read it. And he talked about how much that book helped him. And it was the book that I had read that I thought wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. And I didn't tell my father in that moment why I didn't like that book. Because the Holy Spirit was just convicting me. And the Holy Spirit was saying to me, Who are you to determine the legitimacy of anybody else's ministry? And the very grace I've wanted critics to give to me, I wasn't giving to this brother. So I repented and continued to repent. The text isn't calling us to surrender our convictions. It's calling us to surrender our pride. It's calling us to to understand the magnitude of truth. None of us have it all figured out. But also to realize the magnificence of grace. And so I have learned to ask myself two questions whenever I'm faced with a not one of us question. And here they are. Are the works of the devil being overcome? Is this person, is this church, is this ministry, are these people, are they taking their stand against evil? And number two, are they doing it in Jesus' name? Giving him glory. And if the answer to those two questions is yes, they are not against us. And my brother may be wrong on many things, but he's my brother because he's right on Jesus. You know, they tell the story about John Wesley and George Whitfield. They were good friends in their earlier years, but they had a parting of the ways over a theological controversy. Whitfield uh, leaned more toward a theology called Calvinism and Wesley more toward a theology called uh, Arminianism. And by the way, I'll just tell you right now, most of your people in your churches are not Calvinists and they're not Arminians, they're Calminians. And I promise you, if you check, you'll find that's true. (laughs) And so when Whitfield died, somebody asked Wesley if he thought he would see Whitfield in heaven. And Wesley said, no. He'll be so near the throne of God, men like me will never even get a glimpse of him. The kingdom's unstoppable when its citizens stop trying to stop each other. 
Jesus chooses flawed disciples to do His work. And second, and you know this, Jesus uses our oneness to prove that He's the one. There's a story they tell about a Texas rancher that bought ten adjoining ranches. He tied them all together to form one giant spread. And a friend asked him, what's the name of your new mega ranch? Well, he had wanted to keep part of the names of each of the ten ranches in the new name. So he said, my ranch is called the Circle Q, Ramblin' Brook, Lazy H, Double Fork, Sleepy T, Triple O, Ben Arrow, Fly J, Rockin' K, Crooked Creek Ranch. <laughs> His friend impressed said, wow, but you must have a lot of cattle. He says, not really. Most of them can't survive the branding. <laughs> and Jesus has a lot of followers. But the branding is killing us. He knew divided disciples are never going to reach a fractured world. Now, I know you've known this text for years, but listen to it one more time. And then ask yourself, while I read, I want you to ask this. Does Jesus pray for impossible things? Does Jesus pray for things that he knows good and well simply can't happen? Because that's how we've treated this prayer. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. What does Jesus hate? He hates what gets in the way of the God's love. How is the world to know that God loves them? Our unity. And you know unity is not uniformity. In fact, it can't be. Unity is only possible in the midst of differences. If we were all exactly alike, that's not unity. That is sameness. Jesus isn't exalted because he's made us all identical. He's exalted because he's made us family in spite of our differences. And what he produced in that early world had never been seen before. A community where racial division and socioeconomic division and gender division disappeared. The world still hasn't seen anything like, as Jonathan said last night, the church at her very best. And when the world sees horizontal reconciliation through Christ, Jesus says they will start to believe that vertical reconciliation to God through Christ is possible. This was his death wish. And I ask you again, did Jesus ever pray for anything that was outside the will of God or outside the realm of fulfillment? We must believe that Jesus' prayer is mission possible. That our oneness for His name can transcend our fondness for our own names. And this is no option for those of us who believe the Great Commission is no option. You see, my son is wrong. 
Jesus doesn't hate all kinds of math. As a matter of fact, he's particularly fond of addition and multiplication. <laughs> it's division he hates. And our focus on people, just let's forget outside churches of Christ. Our focus on people inside churches of Christ who express Christ differently reflects a sad lack of burden for those who don't confess Christ at all. It really does. You know, if my kids are in a house on fire, I don't care which fire station gets there first. Just save my kids. I think uh, I may have told the story some years ago. A group of about eight or ten ministers that I am friends with were on the same flight to go to the funeral of a, the wife of another friend of ours. And it was one of those flights where we could sit and face each other. And we got, like preachers do, into a debate. And this particular debate was on how does the Holy Spirit operate today. And one side took a pretty traditional conservative position. And one side took a much more progressive, it's all open position. And Larry James, who works in uh, Dallas among the poorest of the poor, was asked to weigh in on the debate. And I'll never forget, he said, you know, the people I work with, they're addicts, they're on welfare, they're homeless. And this question just never comes up. <laughs> Trust me. The very issue that your church at home right now is fussing about is a debate only affluent, non-persecuted Christians can afford. I recall the day that changed my ministry. I'm in the bush in Zambia. It's in the height of the AIDS epidemic. I'm preaching under three giant mango trees for about six hours to about 400 people. A good portion of my audience was dying, either from AIDS or literally from starvation. And it just dawned on me in that moment, I really don't care your particular view of the return of Christ. I could care less whether you have a piano in your church or not. Just come stand next to me today and help me tell them about Jesus. Let's turn our hearts, our eyes to a world in darkness and concentrate on addition. I think Jesus would love that. Yes, the Prince of Peace, the meek and the lowly, knew how to get a good hate on. Anytime we behaved in any way that got in the way, of somebody finding out how much they were loved of God. So today, just know, all of you recovering controlaholics, there's a whole lot of people out there. Go love on them. Make sure you don't make Jesus mad. Have a good day. We'll see you tomorrow.